Well, hey, hey there, happy innovators. How y'all doing, huh? You having a good week? Are you getting things done? I know it's been a long time since my last podcast, and you know, I just won't even bother making explanations for it. I just, you know, chalk it up to it's just how I roll, you know? Um, I realize that I'm very sporadic with my podcast schedule, and you know, it's something that, uh, you know, is discouraged to do, you know, by people who are professional podcasters. You know, you're supposed to be regular with this kind of thing. But, um, well, one, I'm not a professional podcaster. And two, you know, I'm, I'm so busy doing other things that the podcast sometimes has to take a back seat. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm okay with that, right? I mean, Music is more important than me, you know, flapping my gums for 45 minutes. So the music usually takes precedence, right? So you understand. But anyway, I do apologize for the large gap in time in between these last few podcasts. And, um, you know, I'm on uh, the last five uh, podcasts to, until I get to the 100 podcast mark. So this will be episode 96. And, uh, you know, I did have a plan or a dream or a vision to have the last five of the first 100 podcasts be something a little bit special. But, you know, I can't really think of anything to do, believe it or not, which is unusual for me, really. But um, I decided rather than waiting for some special idea to come around and into my mind, you know, it's better to just start talking. So that's what you got here today. You know, I decided it's time for another podcast. And, uh, you know, the mood was right. So here we are. And uh, I got to tell you, these past couple months for me have been an odyssey. Okay. And uh, it's a long, long, sordid story that I won't you know, bother telling you now. Because truthfully, I'm still not out of the odyssey that I started a couple months ago, but, um, I'm sure somewhere down the line, the whole story will come out and I'll explain everything to you, but just suffice it to say that it's been a pretty intense past couple months for me and, uh, in a good way too, you know, a positive way. So it's nothing negative. It's positive. Um, and you know, we got spring in the air now, the, the snow has melted and, the sun is out and the birds are out and they're singing and you know it's kind of like that transitional period between the freezing cold of winter and the balmy heat and humidity of the summer it's like the temperature tends to be just perfect right now you know kind of like in the fall the spring is kind of the same way too you know so i've been enjoying that you know having the windows open sometimes and Just, you know, having uh, no snow to shovel and uh, safe roads to drive on and just beautiful sunshine, sunlight. Uh, Spring is a beautiful time of year. Everything's starting to kind of turn green, you know, leafy. And, uh, well, it's worth talking about a little bit, right? Um, You know, I've been noticing this thing lately ever since... Um, Eddie Van Halen from Van Halen died and uh, Neil Peart from Rush passed away, you know, about a year ago. Both of them did. 
And, uh, you know, I've talked about it before in my previous podcasts that, um, you know, I really kind of feel sad, saddened by the loss of these two phenomenal musicians, you know, who were uh, regarded as, you know, performers that are at, were at the top of their game. You know, one on guitar, one on drums, two different bands, but they both kind of came out of the same era. And, uh, you know, I'm 50 years old uh, and I, you know, I grew up listening to Van Halen and Rush and, you know, I was a musician too when I was, you know, younger and everything. So they were important figures in my life, you know, and I, and like I said, I've expressed it before in my uh, previous podcasts, you know, that I'm saddened by their passing, but lately I'm coming to another conclusion. I think that's maybe a bit more profound and probably a lot more important to be thinking about or talking about. And it's like basically something like this, that um, we've really lost, I, th- I think we've really lost something. Uh or we really lose something when we lose a performer like Neil Peart or like Eddie Van Halen. And it's something that can't be replaced. You know, um, these guys, these two men, famous musicians, were so proficient at their instruments and the groups that they played in were so good. You know, and we've heard so much of their music over the past 30 or 40 years. Um, And I really am starting to kind of realize and kind of like feel, I can feel it, that we've lost something, you know? Watching uh, a lot of this concert footage of Van Halen now and the Rush concerts that are kind of like popping up on YouTube, you know, they're being recommended. YouTube because that's like in the zeitgeist right now. It's a popular thing to, you know, and you have all these YouTubers and stuff that are making videos, you know, paying tribute, you know, to these superstars, these excellent musicians. And, um, you know, it's kind of, that's always kind of funny to me because ultimately when you make like a tribute video like that, it becomes more about you and less about the person that you're paying a tribute to. So I try to avoid that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I get it. I get it, you know. Uh, Everybody wants a little piece of Eddie Van Halen. You know, everybody wants a little piece of somebody like Neil Peart. They want as much of them as they can get, you know. So it's, you know, not that difficult to make a, a video of a drummer doing a cover of a Neil Peart song or a guitar player doing a cover version of an Eddie Van Halen guitar solo or something. But here's what the difference is between those people that are paying tribute to those artists and the artists themselves. And that difference is this. It's one thing to be a musician that can copy what someone else has done. It's a completely different thing, a completely different animal. Uh, to be able to make up a piece of music, you know, to make it up, to come up with an original piece of music that is done 
so well, that is executed so well, that others are influenced by it and pay tribute to what you did by copying what you did first, you know? So it's not that impressive to me to watch somebody play, you know, Tom Sawyer by Rush on their drums because they didn't write it. They just listened to what someone else did and they copied it. And Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush, he's the he's the real genius. And, the you know, he's, at least in my book anyway, I'm impressed by him. You know, his, his ability to come up with ideas and to execute them perfectly and have them be done so well, you know, that others copy and mimic what he came up with, what he made up, what his imagination and his creativity was able to like extract out of the ether and put into our reality via, you know, his hands, his body, his brain and his drum set, you know? I know that sounds like, uh, I guess, a little bit arbitrary, probably. Like, it's not that big of a deal. But like I was saying, I guess that's the point of this podcast today. That's what I'm kind of getting at. You know, is that we've really, really lost something special. uh, With the loss of a band like Rush, you know, never being able to perform again live the way that they had for the past 35 years or 40 years, you know? Um, I was fortunate enough, okay, I can say I was fortunate enough to have seen Van Halen in concert and I had seen Rush in concert, so I'm happy about that, that, you know, I didn't blow it off when the opportunity came. I, I went to the concert, I paid for the ticket, I showed up and I watched what they did. And especially with Rush, I got to tell you, both my wife and I went to their concert, the R30 concert um, in Boston when they came. And oh, my gosh, you know, it was such a great show from the very beginning until the very end. Um, Just it was one of those shows where we really felt like we got our money's worth. And we really felt like when we were leaving that concert that we had really witnessed a very high level quality performance. You know, uh, it was entertaining, the, you know, pyrotechnics and explosions and flames. And, you know, of course, Neil Peart's famous, you know, massive drum set, you know, on the carousel where it would turn, you know, rotate and half the drum set was electronic and the other half was acoustic and, the whole shebang. We got to see the whole thing, you know. Um, and like I said, it's just we, we've really as a culture, as a civilization, it, it sounds funny saying it like this, but I really do feel that we've we've really lost something. We really have. It's it's really tragic that well, we won't ever be able to see uh, Rush perform any of their music again live and the same with Van Halen you know um I you know I I checked out uh just because there's so much stuff coming up into my feed like on YouTube there's so much stuff about Van Halen and so much stuff about Rush you know coming at me I noticed that Eddie Van Halen's son Wolfgang Van Halen 
is starting to release music on his own. And I gotta say, he had this one song, I think it was called Don't Back Down by Mammoth. That's the name of the band, I guess, that he's calling it. Um, I guess derived from the original name of Van Halen, like before they were Van Halen, they were called Mammoth, I believe. And so Eddie Van Halen's son is carrying on with the name Mammoth. And the song was called Don't Back Down. And I am really shocked at how good uh, Eddie Van Halen's son is, uh, you know, writing and recording his own songs like I do. You know, he does all the instruments and everything. I was really kind of shocked at how good his song actually was and the production and everything. I'm not sure, you know, how much of it really is done by just him. You know, I'm sure that on some level, you know, he's connected enough to the music industry to have really major people probably helping him out. But I guess the point is, if you're curious or you're interested in listening to something like that, you want to check it out, I'll leave a link for it in the description for this podcast. And you can go check out Eddie Van Halen's son, Wolfgang Van Halen, doing one of his own songs. It's pretty impressive. But, you know, I'm talking about all this stuff coming up in my YouTube feed, right? With Van Halen and Rush and everything like this posthumous boom of, you know, videos and, you know, content that's based around the idea of, you know, talking about Rush, Neil Peart, Eddie Van Halen and the band Van Halen, the history of the band, the songs. And it's getting to the point now where it's like um, people are literally paying homage to Eddie Van Halen and Neil Peart now. It's like um, they're beyond uh, influential and beyond um, just, you know, pop stars or rock stars. They've become icons and they're like, you know, almost like worthy, you know, of worship. By, by other musicians now. It's becoming that kind of thing. And it's, I, I think that's kind of weird. Okay, it's kind of weird. But um, it's also fascinating, too. You know, that they've transcended their instrument now. Now that they've died, now they're no longer here. Um, and people are starting to emerge now with the stories of their greatness, you know. And uh, they're breaking it down into, like, the minutiae of Van Halen and how, you know, he strung his guitars and what kind of guitar picks he used and how Van Halen really got started and where they recorded and what they recorded on and who was there when they recorded it and all kinds of stuff like that, you know? And I don't know about you guys, but for me, okay, like one thing I've noticed is like when I go into like a store a grocery store, you know, or a mall or something, or whenever there's like a sporting event on television or something, you know, there's music being played almost constantly, you know? And do you ever think about that? Like wherever you go and whatever you're doing, usually, okay, especially if it's in a public space, there's some kind of music being played at all times. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because what I've noticed 
over the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years, is that the music that's being played, like in the background at the mall or at a sporting event or in a movie, you know, a lot of that music is music from like the 1980s. Okay, let's say no, the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, and maybe like the early 2000s. Okay, there's not a whole lot of new music being played like, you know, at the mall or something. It's not like it was when I was younger where, you know, a band would come out with a song, let's say like when the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, first broke onto the scene and, you know, they were releasing uh, what, like Superstition, you know, that cover version of that Stevie Wonder song and they were a new band and Mother's Milk was a, a newer album and they were just kind of starting to break. Well, you know, the week prior to that release date, right, of that record, nobody really kind of knew who they were. And they were all of a sudden a new band, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, on the scene and their songs were on the radio and their songs continued to stay on the radio even until like this very moment like from that moment forward the red hot chili peppers were going to be being played on the radio or somewhere some other medium somewhere all the time and i guess the reason that i'm talking about it the reason that i'm bringing it up is because i kind of wonder why that is like why is it that we still are only hearing the music from the past like on a regular basis you know like if you go to a football game you'll hear crazy train by ozzy osbourne you know or you'll hear um seven nation army by white stripes but you don't hear you know the new song from the rival sons you know or you don't really hear the new song from Greta Van Fleet, you know, you, but you will hear Aha, Take On Me, and you will hear uh, Don't You Want Me by Human League, or you'll hear, um, you know, Hot for Teacher by, by Van Halen, or Subdivisions by Rush, right? But you won't hear, like, the new Billie Eilish song, you know? And I wonder why that is. And I suppose to kind of like cut to the chase, I guess my guess, my best guess, is that it is because the music of that earlier part of my life, the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, I really do feel, okay, that the quality of the music is actually better than the new music that's coming out. And I know I can hear you. You know, I sound like an old man, right? Like, get off of my lawn, right? But I'm telling you, that's not it. That's not it. Because I listen to a lot of new music and I'm open to all kinds of styles of music. And, you know, I can usually find something I like about anything. Okay, even if I don't like the music, I might like something about it. Right. So I don't consider myself to be like an old man that way, you know, 
I mean, music is my trade. You know, it's what I do for money. So it's a different relationship, you know, for me than it is for a lot of other people that I know. You know, I, I listen to a lot more music. My taste is usually broader than, you know, my friends and stuff. So why is that? You know, why is it, what is it about the music of my younger days that is making it so much better than what's coming out right now? You know, is it the the way that the songs are recorded? Uh, maybe. Is it the way that the songs are written and performed? Probably. You know, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of qualities about that older music. There were certain standards that had to be met that really kind of, for the most part, no longer really have to be met. You know, because technology does allow for a lot of repair work and things to be fixed after a song has been recorded, you know? Now, I mean, I know this is a technical conversation, okay, about the recording process, but I have a couple of theories about why I think the music of the earlier part of my life is better than the music that's coming out now. And one of the qualities that I think makes the music of the earlier part of my life, the first half of my life, better than the music that's coming out, let's say, in the second half of my life, okay? Um, Delineated by the age of 50, okay, let's just say. Um, You know, there's a process uh, in recording that's done now. It wasn't always this way, but it's how it's being done now, where... There's the quantization, that's the term, quantizing. The quantization of tracks in a song. And quantizing is a way of kind of taking a recording that's imperfect, technically imperfect, and um, snapping it into perfection via the computer. So let's say you play a drum beat to your click track, you know, on your song, And you're trying to stay in time with the click track. It's a guide, right? And let's say that some of your snare hits or your bass drum hits, you know, they're they're not quite hitting perfectly, okay? Well, you can program a computer to take all of your drumming and automatically pull it into perfection, okay? So you play it imperfectly and then... After the fact, you can make it perfect at the click of a button, okay? And they call that quantizing, you know? Now, quantizing is a technique that I personally don't use. A lot of my peers do. Most of the music that you hear being, you know, released on the radio now, especially a lot of the hip-hop music, is all quantized, Okay, and that's not to say that the groups aren't talented or don't really have the ability to play the instruments properly in a recording or on a recording, but it does call them into question at least a little. You have to wonder, right? Like, can they even really play the song properly or are they relying on the computer to make it perfect for them? Now, for me, 
personally. I don't use quantizing. I play to a click track the old-fashioned way, a metronome. You know, one of those things that goes... You know, it gives you the, the beat, the tempo, and you play to that sound, right? That you play to that. That's what I do. And for the longest time, I thought to myself, like, because I wasn't using the modern technique of quantizing, and there was an audible difference between my songs and the songs of other artists that are coming out now, at the same time I'm releasing new music, you know, there's this huge difference in the sound, and it's because of the way I'm recording my songs. And for the longest time, I felt that that was kind of like a strike against me, that it somehow made my music, I don't know, like less than like what other artists were releasing, like my peers or contemporaries, right? And, you know, I used to think that way, but I don't anymore because what I'm starting to slowly realize and I'm starting to hear other musicians talk about this very subject, okay, is that when you quantize music, when you allow the computer to snap your music into perfection, like into perfect time, okay, you lose some of the rocket sauce, you know, you lose some of the magic of a song. And it's very subtle. And for people who don't play music, and, you know, they're unfamiliar with the recording process. This is probably all like, you know, makes no sense to you at all. Okay. But I'm sorry about that. I really am, I guess, at this moment, speaking to people who are musicians that might be listening to this podcast and they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. That when you play to a click track like I do, as opposed to the quantizing process, there's a slight um, speeding up and slowing down that takes place. Just because I'm human, I'm not a machine, I'm not perfect. So therefore, my recording of my drumming or my playing guitar or my singing or bass guitar, whatever, piano, it won't be perfectly in time. There's little slight little speeding up or slowing down or Sometimes my drums hit too soon or they hit too late just by milliseconds, you know, because, I mean, I have a basic grip on, you know, keeping time and how to play in time to a click track that and that guide. I can I can play to that sufficiently enough where, you know, it's not a train wreck, but I'm not perfect. And I can make it perfect if I wanted to, but I've chosen not to. And a lot of my peers, a lot of my contemporaries are using quantization. They're, they're making their music perfect, but the, this, there's, a, there's a, a school of thought that is starting to emerge now, having used quantization now for a couple decades and there's a lot of music that's made that way be still being made that way and um, this philosophy that's kind of like emerging is that maybe that's not such a good thing 
that maybe music being perfect is really not what we should be shooting for. And what we should be shooting for is that more human element to the idea of recording music. Now, like I said to you a little bit ago, I've been making music the same way my entire life. So I play to a click track. I don't quantize. My, a lot of my peers do. A lot of my contemporaries do. And I had thought that that was like a shortcoming on my end that my music was somehow not as good or as modern sounding as my peers and my contemporaries. But now, okay, like this far into this whole thing, I'm starting to realize that it's part of, okay, it's part of what makes me sound or makes my songs sound the way that they sound. That it, it does sound more alive and more human than a lot of the music that I'm hearing like coming out now. It doesn't mean that it's better. It just means that you can hear, especially if you have a trained ear, when you listen to a pipe choir song or a PC3 song and you have a trained ear, you can hear these little mistakes that I kind of make and I leave them in. They're not really mistakes, really. They're just kind of like slight little slippage of time. Like when I'm playing a guitar line or I'm playing a drum line, there's these tiny little moments when I'm not exactly perfectly right on time. Like there's, it's a little early or a little late, but not enough to destroy the song or to ruin the flow of the song, but enough to at least on a subconscious level, or I don't know, audibly hear there's a human element to this song you're hearing. Like when you listen to Sister Wind, or you listen to The Damage a Lie Can Do, or any of the songs I've done, the oldest songs all the way up to the newest ones I've released, um, they've all been recorded using the same process, and that has never changed. And... You know, I used to think, okay, I need to work myself up to the level of quantization and having that kind of equipment and really kind of getting my arms around that process of recording music that way. But now I'm kind of glad that I never really did. It's something I don't do. Everybody else is doing that now. And I'm not. I'm one of the only artists that I can think of offhand anyway. Um that is doing it the way that I'm doing it, the old fashioned way, you know? I mean, I play to a metronome, that's it. There is no computer magic or trickery going on with my performances. You know, what you hear is what you get. Now I can adjust things and tweak things and replay mistakes, you know, go over things again and, you know, eliminate a bad version of something and replace it with a better performed version of something. And I can do that. And I do do that. But for the most part, all of my music, all of it, even the, the world record stuff, the really long songs and stuff, all that stuff is done uh, the old fashioned way. You know, there is no real modern, you know, trickery going on or, you know, software that fixes everything 
There's a lot of flaws and mistakes in my songs, in my recordings, and they're left in, they're kept in. And, you know, that used to be kind of like by default because I didn't know how to do it any other way. But now, you know, I'm starting to hear this rhetoric, you know, coming from studio engineers and other musicians that are kind of saying, you know, maybe this idea of quantizing our music is really not the way we should go. It has its perks. It has its a time and place and all that, I guess. But there's a newfound respect or a newfound like admiration for music that's being made organically. And I guess that's what I wanted to talk about. You know, like I'm like it used to be a shortcoming for me. It used to be something I, I sought to eventually overcome, but now it's become probably the way that all music should be being recorded now. And I'm just going to kind of stick with the way I've always been doing it, which is the old fashioned way, you know? And like I said, I apologize to people that are listening to this podcast that are not, you know, recording artists or they're not musicians. They don't understand the process of recording and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I guess maybe in the future I could talk about that more, maybe try to explain how things are done. But for all you musicians out there, especially like you home studio people, engineers that are doing it out of their house like I am, um, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. I know you do. And uh, go back and listen to some of my stuff, you know, and you'll you'll see what I mean. It's, it's very subtle. But now it's become like a badge of honor for me. I guess that's my point, you know. And, um, you know, this, and that idea of this, the music from the past, you know, being better than the music that's coming out now, I think or I feel is because of that fact that a lot of the stuff that we're hearing all the time you know, constant rotation, like at stores and, you know, sporting events or on the radio. It's like the, always the same songs. Did you, I mean, you've, you have to have noticed that, right? Like you turn on the radio or whatever, you're going to hear Prince. You're going to hear Madonna. You know, you're going to hear Led Zeppelin. You're going to hear Michael Jackson. You're going to, you know, all these groups that came out 30 years ago, whatever, you know, the songs are 30 years old, 20 years old, 15 years old, but they're the songs that are dominating a society, really, not even just radio. They're dominating everything. Everywhere you go, the music that you hear in the background is more often than not something that came out like 25 years ago. It's not new music. We're not hearing the new artists and the new music like when we go to the mall. We're hearing old classics, really. And, you know, you got these people on YouTube. It's really kind of interesting. These um, YouTube channels that are devoted to taking the songs of the past. You know, let's say Tom Sawyer from Rush. 
and they'll quantize the song. They'll put it in a perfect time. And it's really kind of funny that the song suddenly stops kind of working the way that we're used to hearing it. Like it sounds kind of awkward, you know, like when you listen to Journey's Don't Stop Believin' and they have Steve Perry's voice, you know, pitch corrected, it all of a sudden loses that familiarity. It becomes something else that's a little bit more disjointed and a little bit more awkward. And it really kind of speaks to what I'm saying here, you know, that, you know, Steve Perry's voice in Don't Stop Believing is not technically perfect all the time. He has slight sharps and flats, you know, with his voice, but like that's what makes it sound alive. You know, it's not a machine. It's not a robot. You know, it's a human being singing into a microphone with no tricks. You know, it's it, what you hear is what you get. And the music is alive, you know, because it was real people recording real instruments and not, you know, making it perfect after the fact, you know, via software and computers. You know, what you hear is what you get. And I would predict now that in the future we will see an uptick in artists, you know, recording artists, um, especially major ones, uh, breaking away from or walking away from the quantizing uh, technique, you know, and and heading more into something that's a little bit more reminiscent of the past where uh, the music sounds a little bit more organic, you know, played to a click track, recorded on tape, you know, not digital. It's like I, I predict, you know, I guess for whatever my predictions are worth, I predict that in the future we're going to see a return back to the old school ways of recording, you know, or reverting back to that old style, you know, and I guess that old style that I've never really abandoned, you know, used to be something I thought was like a fault of mine. Now I think it's a badge of honor, you know, I wouldn't do it any other way. And I'm glad, I guess, I'm glad I never really learned or got into quantizing or auto-tuning my voice or, you know, whatever. I mean, you will never hear a vocal, you know, sung by me that's been auto-tuned. That'll never happen. I have no interest whatsoever in, you know, trying to make my voice sound pitch perfect. You know, it's just not something that's important to me never has been and it never will be especially now from this point forward you know what does it mean is it important you know is it a game changer for anything does it change anything for anybody no not really no it just solidifies my position in all of this you know and uh, if you're wondering what it is what that quality is about some of the recordings that I've done like why does it sound a little bit more alive. Well, folks, there you go. There's the secret. I do it the old school way. I pick up an instrument, I play it in, I record it, and I don't use any computer tricks to fix it. It is what it is, you know, and if 
it's not performed right, then I redo it. I do it correctly. And uh, so there you go. And you know what? That's about all I want to say for today on this podcast, this Singularity Podcast number 96. We're working on our way to podcast number 100. We're going to get there, folks. Don't you worry. And, um, you know, until next time, until episode 97, uh, this is Mike Bostwick from Pipe Choir Records signing off. And remember, folks, if you want to keep what you've got, you've got to give it away. Take it easy, everybody. Okay, happies, all my happy innovators that were kind enough to stick around to the end of the podcast for some music. And you know what I got for you today? I have I have a song that I did. It's called Monashine. And uh, the other day, my wife and I were in the car driving somewhere. And, uh, you know, she likes to listen to my songs on her iPod, which I think is kind of cool. You know, I can appreciate that. You know, she really does like the songs, you know. Um, it's not just because I'm her husband or something. You know, she likes it. And she played me the song Monashine. And she was kind of telling me how much she really likes the song. And um, oh, I thought that was pretty cool, you know. And uh, to tell you the truth, it was, you know, it's kind of like I don't... I don't always go back and like listen to my songs. I do sometimes, you know, uh, you know, uh, I enjoy it. I enjoy listening to what I've done and things like that, but I don't really do it too often. And Monashine is one of those songs that, you know, <laughs> well, you know, I like it. I think it's one of my favorite tracks off the Escon's album, you know, uh, the Pipe Choir Escon's album, but it was like listening to it in the car, you know, with the windows down and the wind coming in the car and the, you know, the stereo kind of turned up pretty loud and really kind of listening, like sitting back and listening to Monashine, you know, it wasn't so bad, you know, and I thought, you know what, for my next podcast, I'm going to share Monashine just because uh, I guess a little bit of a tribute to my wife. And how cool it is that uh, she actually digs some of the songs that I've made over the years, you know? So here you go, folks. Without further ado, circa 2017, uh, the Pipe Choir Escon's version of the song Monashine. Um, One of my favorite tracks that I've done, and apparently one of my wife's favorites too. So hopefully you'll enjoy it. Peace out, everybody. Talk to you next time. Behave, stay out of trouble, be safe, have fun, and see ya.
Let's go.